Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRM. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to I Communicate, the Mindset Go Radio Show. Glad to be with you here on a Thursday afternoon. And I got to tell you, I feel so honored and to have our guest today because we're going to talk about something that does not have to do with the coronavirus, God bless. And hopefully this is a distraction for everybody because uh, former uh, Red Sox and Angels executive Mike Port is joining us today. And Mike, so glad to have you here as an expert and as a distraction. Thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure. So, Mike, I, I, I know you're retired, but, you know, before we came on the show, you were telling me a great story. And, I, and so I know you, you started out... Uh, professionally as a minor leaguer and, uh, you know, playing in the, in the Padres organization, correct? Uh, that is correct. Yes. Okay. And so, you know, I was asking you, uh, and I know you got injured and, and the injury derailed your uh, career and, and, and kind of helped you segue to being an executive, but talk a little bit about the experience you had. You had mentioned, uh, being signed by Duke Snyder. So if you wouldn't mind just chatting a little bit about that. Well, it was always my aspiration Mark, to play 20 years in the major leagues, and then perhaps after that, uh, go into front office work. It's just that the front office side arrived about 19 years and 10 months uh, sooner than my perfect plan called for. Uh, I was one of the original San Diego Padre organization signees back in uh, the late summer of 1968, uh, shortly after they were awarded the franchise, and was uh, fortunate to have been signed by the great Hall of Fame center fielder, Duke Snyder, uh, who was then scouting for the Padres. Uh, Duke got me, surprisingly, a signing bonus uh, in the amount of $1,000. And as you probably know, the president of the original San Diego club was Buzzy Bavese, the great, great, great Dodger general manager, eight National League pennants, four World Series, two American League division championships. Anyway, uh, Duke got me a signing bonus of $1,000 and told me that he would give me the best advice I ever received, which was uh, that if I was smart, I would cash that check before Buzzy saw me play. And uh, in hindsight, uh, and after the work I've been fortunate to do over the last 40-some years, he was so correct. Uh, it was not only injury that curtailed my career, it was also a decided lack of ability. <laughs> well, so Mike, you know, we have so much to get to on the show today, so I'm going to kind of throw questions at your rapid fire. I, since we're talking about the Padres, I'd love to uh, hear your experience working under Ray Kroc. I mean, certainly for those of you who don't know, uh, not only was Ray Kroc uh, an owner of the Padres, but he was the uh, he was the person who took McDonald's global and inherited essentially the franchise from the brothers that started McDonald's, and so. Uh, two-part question for you, Mike, on this is, wh what was it like working for Ray, and did he ever give you any business advice? Uh, he was uh, quite a, I would say, mercurial personality. I mean, he was uh, eternal curiosity, as is a trait of many great people of accomplishment. Uh, and certainly he was somewhat unknown when he bought the Padres, uh, but uh, then when he became 
part of baseball and with some subsequent events, everybody came to know Ray Kroc and correlated it uh, with McDonald's. Uh, just uh, watching Ray operate and, as I mentioned, his eternal curiosity and his uh, determination to get things done was a good lesson in itself. And I think that uh, as we were around him day by day, uh, we learned that certainly you better put in the time or effort or your time with him would be indeed short. So, so Mike, you know, you, 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 you got to work in the Padres system, and then you transitioned in 79 to assistant GM of the Angels. I'm wondering is, you know, what did you see in yourself that gave you the confidence that here you are, you were a baseball player, and you were immediately thrust into a leadership position. You know, what, what did you see and what did you hear? What did you see in yourself and what did you hear from others that gave you the confidence and empowerment to do that? Well, when I, when I came off the playing field, uh, actually having been released, and I was at a complete loss, Mark, as to what to do. I spent about a week back in the San Diego area, my home area, going to banks, real estate, brokerage houses, and so forth. Uh, when Pete Bavese, then the minor league director for the Padres, called and asked me if I would be interested in going back down to Key West, Florida, as the general manager of that club. And my first thought was this could be a fine endeavor because I thought general managers just sort of knocked around all day, spent time on the phone, watched the game at night. Uh, little did I know that operating a club called for a 48-hour day but I was at least fortunate that first year at Key West uh, to have a manager by the name of Don Zimmer. And so certainly uh, that, that furthered my baseball education in terms of the game itself. But I was just fortunate to be right place, right time, and with the right people. Uh, Buzzy and Peter Bovese, uh Preston Gomez, Don Zimmer, Duke Snyder, all of these people were supportive of me, tolerant of my mistakes. And on my part, I just tried to keep learning and moving ahead. So, Mike, you know, and I equate this to parenting, right? So, you know, I feel like when you're growing up, you see things in your parents that you like and you don't like. And you say to yourself, when I become a parent, I'll do that. Or when I become a parent, I won't do that. When you took over as full-time GM for the Angels in 1984, what what did you see in in the previous GM, Buzzy Pavese, that or Bill Pavese, that you thought, wow, I definitely want to continue this approach to leadership and management, maybe some things you knew you would do a little differently. Could you share a little of those, a few of those things? I, I think from Buzzy, it was just uh, uh, club operations, uh, how to relate to your personnel, whether they be the office personnel or the people on the field, and keeping in mind that the reason that you were in that position for the sake of the particular ownership was to win games and make money. Now, when I talk about in those days making money, uh, I think the ownership nature in years past was to finish on the right, the proper side of the ledger, not to make millions of dollars at the expense of your fans, but to give them an enjoyable experience, do everything you could uh, without losing money uh, or to lose as little as possible. Uh, but, uh, as I say, Buzzy, uh, uh, beyond his other credentials, uh, had something like 24 men uh, who worked for him at various times wind up managing in the major leagues. So I think it was just a matter of how to deal with people, 
and certainly in a baseball sense, how to try to put together a good club. And, and, and Mike, you know, when you took over that team, um, just for our listeners, you know, you inherited a team that was 70 and 92 the year before, had had three or four losing seasons. It was an aging lineup. And that's what you walked in the door with. Now, in 84, you had a 500 season, and then you made the move to reinstate Gene Mock. And so what, what kind of went into that, uh, terminating John McNamara and firing G- or not, rehiring Gene Mock? Well, uh, John McNamara, who remains a, a good, close friend, uh, and whom I had the privilege of working with at San Diego when he managed there, uh, John felt a stronger kinship with Haywood Sullivan of the Red Sox and so John, uh, much of his own accord, uh, took his leave to, to join the Red Sox. Uh, Gene Mock was a bit of a special advisor to the Angels at that time. And Gene and I spent a lot of time uh, going into the World Series that year uh, as observers, talking about the needed characteristics of a manager and so forth. Finally, one day... Uh, slow that I might be, it dawned on me that the man that Gene was describing was Gene Mock. And so <laughs> at that, I convinced him to uh, to come back. And uh, so in 1985, I think we finished one game back in our division and then won the division in 86. Yeah. And, you know, Mike, as I was, as I was reviewing your career, I mean, you were, you were essentially a high level baseball executive for a span of about 25 years. And what struck me is you really experienced some real highs and some real lows. And I, and, I, and I want to start with 1985 because that was a big turning point for the Angels. You know, you guys had a big lead at the All-Star break. Uh, you made the move to acquire John Candelaria in August of that year. Uh, and you fell short to Kansas City by one game. But Kansas City was a real juggernaut back then, which I know for a lot of our younger listeners, that might seem not plausible. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is they were. And I'm wondering, what were you saying to yourself at the end of that season? I mean, you had made such progress, one game out, could have gone either way. What did you tell yourself at the end of that, that season to say, what do we need to do to just take that next step to be a playoff and possible World Series contender? Well, certainly we tried to analyze the club Mark, as far as what further needs uh, might be necessary or changes might be necessary. But I think we we all took our lead uh, from our owner then, uh, Gene Autry. Uh, and for those who are not familiar with Mr. Autry, you should read up on him, one of the great Americans uh, in history. Uh, but certainly on that last day when we lost by the one game, we were disappointed. But God bless Mr. Autry. He came in and said, what are you? What is the matter with all of you? Aren't we going to play next year? Uh, and that, uh, that kept us uh, on a forward-looking plan, and we tried to make the adjustments we needed to, and at least in terms of our division, we're successful the following year. Okay, well, Mike, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to uh, continue talking with Mike Port, former uh, executive for the Angels and Red Sox. We're going to get into the 1986 playoffs, and uh, please stay with us. I'm Mark Altman for the Mindset Go Radio Show. We'll be right back. Now, I communicate continues on full service radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. 
Welcome back to I Communicate here with my special guest, Mike Port. And uh, before we went into the break, we were talking about the 85 and 86 years. And Mike, you know, you, you made, you had the team achieve a lot of progress in 85. And then in 86, the team really took it to another level and uh, made the playoffs and had that uh, famous clash with the Red Sox. And What's interesting about the uh, that series is one big move the Red Sox had made in that off season was to was to acquire Don Baylor, a former you know Angel, uh, solid player with the Angels, and and Baylor of course not only had a huge impact in that series but he had a great season. So I want to start with Mike heading into that playoff series. Um, you know the the last to my recollection the last experience the Angels had in the playoffs was that heartbreaking. Uh, World Series lost the Brewers, correct? Uh, yes, back in uh, '82, I believe it right. was. Where you know there, there we had a lead uh, in terms of games won, but uh, we just could not close it out, and for whatever reason, by the fates, get the job done. Right. So, so talk a little bit about heading into that series. The Angels are back. They 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 had a phenomenal season. I'm sure, there was a tremendous amount of excitement in Southern California as the GM. What was your outlook of the matchup with the Red Sox? Did you feel like you had the better team? Did you like the matchup? Talk a little bit about what was going through your mind at that time. I, I think, uh, and I took my read in terms of our personnel, Mark, largely from Gene Mock. And uh, uh, Gene had faith and trust in our players, and I uh, certainly gravitated to that. Uh, we knew they were a good club. Uh, and uh, Haywood Sullivan and and his group, uh under Mrs. Yockey were uh, you know, most successful to, to make it that far, so you had to had to give them every respect. Uh, but uh, we were determined to the best of our capability to put on the best effort that we could and hopefully prevail and get the Angels into the World Series. But as you know, ultimately, that just was not meant to be. So, you know, we, we get to, like, we get to Game 3. Series was tied at 1. And Donnie Moore, who was ultimately considered one of the big goats in that series, unfairly, but he was. And he had had a lot of injuries throughout that season. You know, he had missed June with a shoulder injury, um, and he battled injuries throughout the season. And I think in Game 3, one of the things I looked up was the Angels won Game 3, but the Sox got to Donnie Moore in Game 3. And it was a bit of a portent of things to come. So... Thoughts from you in terms of Donnie Moore's health going into the playoffs? I mean, he pitched really strongly down the stretch in the regular season. So were you pretty comfortable with his health? Did you have any concerns heading into the playoffs? Uh, no, I think we, we relied on a lot of times then on player input. And, and my memory is that Donnie, uh, he was a competitor and to his credit, willing to take the ball. And I know there are stories floating around about injuries and so forth, but uh, in my mind, I don't think Gene Mock ever put anyone in a game running a risk of injury or if the player had said, Gene, I'm, I'm hurting, I can't go. Uh, Donnie had done a good job for us over the years. So as you point out, uh, coming down the stretch, he was pitching capably. So just like any of our other players, he had Gene's faith and confidence. Yeah, and Mike, you know, one of the things that was interesting is after Game 3, Wally Joyner, who was a star rookie that year and who really emerged as a key player for the team and was having a great series, he gets a staff infection, is now out for the series. So bad news for the Angels. And in Game 4, 
the Angels had a huge motivational win. The Sox blew a ninth inning lead in the three ninth inning three nothing lead. So now you, you you lose Joiner, you win game four, have a huge comeback win, are up three one. Um, was the mood and energy? I mean, maybe this is a foregone conclusion, but was everybody feeling like we got this? I mean, was that your feeling of being around the team at that time? I, I don't think we were overconfident because uh, thanks to, to Gene Mock uh, as the, the leader of the club on the field and the, the point man for the players per se, uh, Gene tried to keep them on an even keel and say, good job, fellas, thus far. We've still got ground to cover. And I would, uh, I would hope, uh, speaking in hindsight, that that was, that was what people had in their, in their mind. I, I don't know that we were overconfident at any point because so many of us over the years had had the experience that Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will. So nothing is done until it's done, and you'd better maintain a forward-looking perspective. Mike, what's the role of a GM in a, in a playoff series like that? I mean, if things are going well, it, you know, for the casual fan, are you down in the locker room after the game essentially congratulating people if it goes well or maybe consoling people if it goes bad? Are you staying out of the player's way? Like, what is the role of a GM typically? Well, in the playoffs, I, I think you hit it right on the head, Mark. You're there to congratulate the players if they are successful, uh, console them, or try to boost their spirits uh, in the event things go otherwise. Beyond that, during the regular season, uh, I don't think uh, GMs belong in the clubhouse for any period of time. My habit was to go down every day uh, just for the sake of showing the flag, if you will, walk through the clubhouse to the training room, check on the injuries, and walk back out just to be available to the players in the event anybody wanted to approach me. But I think it has to be realized that the clubhouse is the player's office. That's their area for preparation, and they don't need uh, people once removed from what they do on the field to be needlessly taking their time, in my opinion. But, Mike, I want to add to that, and I want to ask you about um, – chemistry. And I think in sports, obviously talent is critical. Nobody would argue that. But uh, I'm a freelance sports writer for Associated Press, and I've covered Major League Baseball for the last 20 odd years. And I've been in those locker rooms, and I feel like chemistry is, is as important in baseball as any other sport, simply because of the length of the season, the amount these guys are with each other. So how do you, how do you kind of compare the importance of chemistry leadership talent when you're you know building a baseball team well a uh, couple of things come to mind in that regard mark and i think chemistry is terribly important uh first of all i believe it was dr james andrews the great orthopedic physician uh who once said something to the effect of would you rather have someone of 100 percent ability who gives you 50 percent uh, of that ability or somebody of 80% ability who gives you 100% of their effort. And so I think that uh, that speaks to the importance of, of individual effort uh, and the chemistry comes with the livability with others. Uh, prior to that, uh, with the Angels, uh, we had one of the other great orthopedic surgeons, Dr. Lou Yoakum, uh, the late Dr. Yoakum, uh, sadly he passed away back in 2013, but we sent a player to him of considerable ability for a simple knee procedure, 
the problem with this particular player otherwise is that at baseball, he could sort of take it or leave it. Great ability, but his heart really wasn't in it. And uh, I called Dr. Yoakum that afternoon and said, you know, how is he? And Dr. Now, I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. We're here with uh, former Angels and Red Sox executive Mike Port, and uh, we were talking about uh, the 86 playoffs. And Mike, you know, a, a big part of Mindset Go in, in when I started this company is about the importance of your mindset and resiliency. And I want to talk about when... What's interesting about that game five is even when the Red Sox came back, the Angels came back in the bottom of the ninth and had a chance to still win that game. Doug DeSensei had a quote after Henderson had hit that home run to go ahead, and he said, I don't think I've ever been at such a high and such a low in a matter of seconds. To be on that field and then just to have somebody cut your legs off was incredible. And Doug actually had a chance in extra innings to win the game for the, or the bottom of the ninth, I believe, to win the game for the Angels and didn't come through. But I'm wondering, what's going through your head as the general manager of this team? You know, you're, you're one out away. Um, you, can, you know that what the team must be feeling. The game's over. Like, t- talk about the emotions and feelings you were feeling at that moment and uh, your thoughts about how to bounce back from that. Well, I think that, uh, in honesty, I was probably at the conclusion or in a little bit of a state of shock. Uh, I was still uh, upstairs despite people advising that I should go downstairs and be ready for the celebration and so forth. Uh, just my nature, I wanted to see uh, the hopefully successful end to the situation, and that was not, not to be. Uh, you're right. Uh, uh, Doug had a chance to win the game for us, if not help win the game, when the Red Sox brought in Steve Crawford, who was having troubles with his control. We knew that. Uh, but rather than taking a pitch, uh, Doug uh, apparently lost his concentration and shanked the ball into short right field. Uh, that didn't set us on a very positive track as far as ultimately getting the job done. But uh, shock though that particular game was, the only solace that we could take in the situation collectively was to realize that we still had two more games in Boston that we had to get the job done there. Unfortunately, uh, that was not to be either. So uh, after that, it was just a matter of trying to regroup for the following year. So Mike, when you hear the word, when you think of that team, I'm going to ask you a tough question. When you hear the word choke, is choke an unfair word in sports? And is there a time when, you know, sometimes the cards just don't fall because sometimes I think it's a choke and sometimes it's just bad luck. You know, how do you discern between those two concepts? I think the word choke only has application if there was some way, Mark, of proving that someone uh, in an unsuccessful situation did not give their best effort. If they give their best effort, that's what it is, best effort, and things don't work out. Uh, but I think uh, a lot of times that term might be applied by folks who don't really have a complete understanding of uh, what transpires in an athletic competition. And, and, and Mike, so, so the series ends, and then the next couple of years, the Angels struggle. W- was it 
was it hangover? Was it personnel? Like as, as you kind of wound down your career, Daniels, what happened those next couple of years from your estimation as far as the resiliency and the bounce back aspect? I think uh, with just uh, the natural aging process, Mark, of some of the players uh, in uh, 1988, uh, as you probably know, Gene Mock had to leave the field in spring training due to illness, and uh, yeah. Cookie Rojas took over and essentially did a, a good job for us until about mid-April, excuse me, mid-August, uh, when due to injuries and just the way we were playing, the wheels sort of fell off. Uh, subsequent to that, we hired Doug Rader as the manager and had a comparatively successful year in 1989, 1990. We had more injuries, and so it was at about that point, for whatever reason, that my shelf life, so to speak, with the Angels ran out, and change was in the offing. So, Mike, final thoughts with the Angels. I mean, you were a part of a, a, a development and a management team that signed some huge stars for the Angels. I mean, Tim Salmon, Jim Abbott, Garrett Anderson, Troy Percival, Jim Edmonds, a local guy from here, Gary DeSarcina. So just talk about what, what's your legacy with the Angels? I mean, you, you built a team that was championship caliber. And so how do you take away your experience from there? Uh, since you cast it about light, Mark, I would say that uh, uh, it probably occurs to me, much like Jack Welch's legacy with General Electric, uh, uh, the late Jack Welch, I saw where, uh, although he passed away a couple weeks ago, that uh, he said uh, his job was to select the right people uh, to do the job and tell them how much money they had to do it. And <laughs> in hindsight, that's essentially what I tried to do. I was beyond blessed to have Bill Bavese overseeing our developmental system, and beyond that, Bob Fontaine Jr. as our scouting director. They are the ones in troop that uh, scouted, drafted, signed, and developed the people that uh, you mentioned, many of whom were, were the, the core of the Angels' team that uh, won the 2002 World Series. Right. So, yeah, okay, that's that's good to know. And, I mean, so, and so Mike, you transitioned to the Red Sox. You joined the team as an assistant in 90, assistant GM in 93, and were really part of a team in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, that were going up against juggernaut New York Yankee teams that were so well-built and strongly built. And, and then, you know, you worked under Dan Duquette. And just as a quick note, you know, you and I talked offline about this. You know, talk about a general manager resume. I mean, here's a guy that has traded uh, Heathcliff Slocum for Derek Lowe and Jason Veritek, brought in Manny, brought in Ortiz, traded for Pedro, drafted Kevin Euclid and Nomar Garcia Parra. I mean, this guy's list of accomplishments goes on and on. However, I think if you talk to a lot of Red Sox fans, um, they'll remember that he was the one that let Clemens go and they don't really have a lot of fond feelings to him. And I guess my, my question is, I think Dan Duquette often was his own worst enemy because of his personality. He wasn't the most outgoing, friendly guy in the world. So I wonder in working, uh, two part question in working under him, did you think that he got, he got treated unfairly sometimes because he wasn't the most extroverted guy? And uh, how was your experience working with him? I think first, uh, Mark, Dan's focus was always on the, the club, on the field, and getting results there. I think, uh, by my observation, his dealing with the media and in matters of personality, I think he saw that as secondary to 
trying to bring good players on board and get the job done in terms of, of wins and losses. And I think uh, his intelligence and I think his confidence was such that, uh, with all due respect to members of the media, uh, he did not suffer fools lightly. Uh, and <laughs> I think uh, he that, that gave many the impression that he was uh, unavailable or uh, aloof, uh, when in fact, uh, I think the, the record will show in the ultimate, uh, he brought a lot of people on board. Uh, the situation with, with Roger, certainly the Red Sox would like to have retained Roger, but uh, at some point, some things reach a matter of price, and it's not necessarily something if the player leaves that you know is uh, necessary to discuss publicly, but I think history will show good players come and good players go, uh, and sometimes it's not the fault of the club, although it's the club by the nature of things that, that takes the public relations hit, if you will. Uh, but working for Dan, uh, I, I tried to, number one, remember that he was the boss. Number two, I came to realize that this was an extremely bright and capable baseball man, personality or dealings with the media aside, and that uh, there were perhaps under the surface good things going on with regard to building a club. And as a distant observation, I know we touched upon the Red Sox 2004 World Championship, uh, granting that there is always some carryover when general managers change. When you look at the roster of the 2004 Red Sox World Champions, I think you'll find that probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 12, if not more players on that roster were people that Dan Duquette brought on board. Well, Mike, to your point, not only it's not only the amount of players, but it's the caliber of the players that, that drove that roster were almost all Dan's. So um, the high caliber players. And, you know, it just got me thinking. I, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I lived out in California for a while and got to know Southern California and the California fan base. I have a two-part question for you. First is, what are some of the things you noticed in the difference of Southern California and New England fan base? In part two, how does the pressure of the fan base, in, how does it or does it drive decisions by teams? So those, that's the questions. Uh, first part, uh, Southern California, I think, has, uh, by comparison, certainly marked to New England, Boston in particular, uh, Southern California has a bit of a laissez-faire approach because they have so many other things out there to do, number one, whether it's the beach or the mountains or you know whatever, whatever other uh, entertainment options. Uh, number two, baseball out there uh, is comparatively a, a newer uh, situation. Uh, it was 1958 when the giant, when the Giants and Dodgers uh, came to California, whereas Boston, baseball has been there for time eternal, and the intensity is 50 times 10 uh, compared <laughs> to Southern California. Uh, it's a generational thing. Uh, people live and die with the Red Sox, uh, and you know, it's just uh, just incredibly more intense, and that's reflected in the, the number of media folks covering the club and the standing in the world that the Red Sox have. Mike, hold that thought. We, we've got to go to break. When we come back, I'd love for you to answer the question about how the pressure of the fan base does it drive decisions. So 
We're going to go back for our final segment. Uh, This is Mark Altman. I'm with Mike Port, and we'll be right back. Now, I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate for our final segment. I am Mark Altman here with Mike Ford. And Mike, before you answer the question, I would love for you just to briefly share that anecdote of uh, sports radio in Arizona versus Boston. That was hilarious, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our audience. Uh, One of my friends uh, came to Arizona and was listening to talk radio, uh, sports talk radio, uh, and mentioned that he heard a particular player at the time talking about the art that uh, the paintings, etc., that he had hanging in the hallway of his home. And he was uh, a visitor from Boston, and he told me what a difference that is. He said, when you tune in to sports talk radio in Boston, the intensity with regard to athletics there, professional athletics there, is such that it's like your radio is dripping blood. Uh, <laughs> the intensity is palatable among the fans, and he said that is a much more preferable situation than finding out what sort of paintings are hanging in one's entry hall. That's great. That's great. So, so Mike, you know, what I'm driving at with the pressure and decisions is, you know, everything in sports feels like it's driven by money. Fans, and of course, the Red Sox were always selling out, so that was never really an issue. But, you know, does the, does the fan base put pressure on ownership or management to make decisions at all or quicker decisions than they normally would make? Is that a real, is that a real thing? I, I think it probably well could be the case now, given social media and, and the flow of media information. Uh, I don't know that it was so much the case in years past, Mark, but to me, the formula was always very simple. If you make a trade uh, that works out, you'll be lauded for it. But uh, you know, many that I made that didn't work out, uh, you'll certainly hear about it. Right. So, okay, so I want to I get into the cheating scandal a little bit, but I want to ask you one or two more questions about the Red Sox. So, Mike, quick question is, you know, I know in 03, you know, we had the Pedro Grady Little situation. The Red Sox fell apart in that game and ended up losing a heartbreaking series. Um, and so here you are experiencing being part of a franchise, uh, just not, not only reaching a low, but hadn't won for 85 years, so to, to boot. I'm wondering, in the 2004 season, your final season with the Red Sox, when they fell behind 3-0 to the Yankees, my question for you is, did you see anything in the team? Did you observe anything where you were in the locker room or talking to management where you saw the signs that this comeback could actually take place? I mean, what was going through your mind and ownership's mind at that point? Well, I'm not sure about ownership, but I can only point to the leadership then of Terry Francona, uh, who I think, uh, like Gene Mock many years before, was able to keep the players focused uh, on forward thinking and nothing you can do about yesterday, but we have a chance to do something right today. Uh, As an incidental mention, Mark, uh, 30 years ago in the first year of the Arizona Fall League, the Grand Canyon team was managed by Grady Little, and his coach was Terry Francona. 
Wow. So, uh, indeed, a, a small world in some respects. But wow. uh, I think when you when you look at the managerial success enjoyed by Terry Francona and roll that back to 2004 and the description you uh, describe, uh, I think Terry is due an immense amount of credit for helping the players maintain a proper focus and to the extent that he might have had influence, uh, I guess the word I would use is orchestrate, or at least help orchestrate the, the comeback that occurred. Excellent, excellent. So, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the cheating scandal, Mike. I, I obviously, with everything going on with the Astros and certainly the Red Sox and a few other teams have been implicated. And, and Rob Manfred recently spoke that the decisions will be re- the reports will be released soon. My question to you is. It just feels like cheating has been woven into the fabric more than any other sport. And whether from Shoeless Joe to Pete Rose to amphetamines to steroids to stealing signs, is is what the Astros have done that much worse? And is the game in trouble? I think that uh, certainly baseball has had its uh, you know bumpy moments over the years, are all the way back to as we had discussed off air. Uh, 1951 Dodgers and Giants and uh, the man in the uh, center field clubhouse uh, uh, conveying signs to allegedly to, to Bobby Thompson to hit the home run, etc. But uh, again, other occurrences, though there have been in the history of baseball, uh, granted that we used to steal signs, uh, admittedly. However, the sign stealing that we did was using our brain and our eyes and ears, something which everybody on the field possesses if they want to employ the ability accordingly. And by stealing signs, I mean if a catcher uh, would uh, dangle his fingers too far below his crotch and giving signs so that they could be seen by the coach or manager, yes, so we make use of that information. Or if a player on second base was so inclined and wanted to steal signs, uh, you know, they indeed would would do so but the tools employed were tools uh possessed as i mentioned uh, brain eyes and ears possessed by everyone else on the field they were not uh elements such as are now being employed technologically where uh people are not aware of, of you doing it where you're trying to quote get away with something uh too much technology as a matter of opinion has invaded the game and i think that goes to the uh, mistakes of leadership that the uh, the game has now. Just because you have technology is not a reason to let it invade the game on the field. And I hearken back to an article that was written, I think about a year ago, by Joel Sherman in the New York Post. And Joe very astutely pointed out that uh, technology, analytics, uh, you know, all of that is best utilized to prepare for a contest. But once the game starts... The game belongs on the field, not with a lot of other people off the field uh, trying to participate. Uh, Joel likened it to boxing, perhaps tennis, where you prepare and then you go out and you you play the game. So a lot of the current uh, cheating problems, in my opinion, would be eliminated if someone, whomever that might be, uh, were to abolish technology once the game got underway, have a video room so players can prepare. But once the game starts, a padlock goes on that door. Uh, if they want to have replay, fine, but have it uh, take place up on the press level 
and communication with the dugout should be uh, monitored, taped, if you will, uh, and severe penalties, uh, players and office people imposed if people violate the, the rules that are in place. Keep the game pure, get rid of the technology, because in terms of what baseball is supposed to be, in my judgment, technology has no morals, and again, in the words of uh, the, the late physicist Stephen Hawking, some of the greatest dangers to mankind, and I would add perhaps to baseball, will come from advances in science and technology. So when you have uh, uh, prohibited cameras, uh, prohibited feeds, prohibited means of communicating things to players on the field, uh, you're just asking for trouble. So should the MLB assign in each stadium, at, at each dugout, an official that's kind of, I mean, have MLB, have major league teams lost the right to be trusted? Do we need to micromanage at the MLB level? I think you just make a rule disallowing a lot of that stuff. No technology allowed in the clubhouse or on the, in the dugout once the game begins. And you know, certainly the, the, the dugout can be monitored because you just uh, watch what people are doing in the dugout. Uh, in the clubhouse, uh, somebody comes through on a random basis and makes a sweep just to see what's going on in there. But right, I Mike, think that's going to be the, the root of many more problems to come. And final question on this. When you look at Mike Fires, in your mind, is he a hero, a tattletale, or somewhere in between? I think he's probably more on the side on balance. Uh, I would say 80-20 hero, Mark, because he went public with it. However, keep in mind that in 2017, there are numerous reports that I've seen that the Oakland A's notified Major League Baseball that something was going on with the Astros, and the reports that I saw were that Major League Baseball did nothing about it. So I think that the fires was just bringing to light something that apparently other people already knew about or suspected. Okay. And let me squeeze one more in, Mike. In From a, from the totally out of the random fantasy baseball, uh, people getting to be GMs, are you a fan of that or is that silly to you? Uh, I think it's uh, north of, well north of silly uh, because, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gene Orza, the longtime counsel for the Players Association, once told me something that I consider very astute. Knowledge is no substitute for experience. And mm. too many people are, quote, operating clubs. And you see the results. Uh, never in my time did we have general managers suspended or banned for life. And now you've got uh, three general managers already in the last 10 years suspended or banned. And you have to worry about does that indicate that you've got some kind of culture of corruption in existence? Uh, okay. I don't know. Just posing the question. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Sorry to cut you off. Uh, pleasure having you on. Mike Port, executive from the Angels and Red Sox. This is I Communicate. I'm your host, Mark Altman. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful rest of the week. been listening to i communicate with your host mark altman join us again each week at this time on full service radio wcrn